What can we learn about race from two people who love each other, one black, one white? We find out what a well-educated professional woman discovered about racism from her husband, a top law enforcement official and the first African-American to be elected to countywide office where he lives. This is Let's Find Common Ground. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Today, we look at finding common ground on racism from the most intimate perspective, that of a married couple. Errol Toulon and his wife, Tina McNichol Toulon, have been together less than five years. Both had successful careers when they met. Tina is a physician's liaison and business development executive. She has two children from a previous marriage. And Errol Toulon is the first African-American sheriff of Suffolk County on New York's Long Island. It's a majority white county with more than a million and a half residents. Errol's first wife died in 2013. They had two children, and he has faced two life-threatening bouts with cancer. Both Tina and Errol believe education is a crucial ingredient in reaching a much better understanding about widespread racism. They generously agreed to share their personal story. I asked them how they met. So I, I guess I'll answer that. We, we met on Match.com. Ah. We've been married four years and one month now. Um, we actually it took us a couple weeks before we met, but it was pretty instantaneous when we met. I had been on Match a long time, um, and I was the first person Errol met on Match. That's like me and my husband. <laughs> exact same story. I had been doing online dating for ages and having date after uninspiring date and he had never been on a website before and I was the first person he went out on a date with exactly right and I thought he was a fake profile because I didn't think anybody actually looked that good that my <laughs> must clearly have been you know some some kind of professional model <laughs> when he was real and then all sorts of real once I googled him <laughs> so it was awesome actually still is how long did you correspond for before you decided, okay, we need to meet in person? It was actually two weeks. And, you know, the interesting thing was the fact that we spoke every day for almost four hours in the evening when we would both get home from work. And sometimes it went to 1230, one o'clock in the morning. And then, of course, during the day, we would send occasional text messages. And then in the evening, when we had both settled in, we got back into our phone calls. Let's go back a bit further in time, Errol, and uh, tell us a little bit about your background and childhood and where you grew up. Sure. I, I grew up in the South Bronx. My mom was a school teacher with the old Board of Education, and my father was a warden on Rikers Island. I'm proud to say that during my junior and senior year in high school, I was a bat boy for the New York Yankees. I attended a two-year community college and then went on to become a New York City correction officer following in my father's footsteps. Uh, I worked there for 25 years, um, retiring as the deputy commissioner of operations. Uh, and during my last few years, I developed two different types of cancers. In 1996, I had Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then in 2003, I had pancreatic cancer, which ultimately forced me to retire. You mentioned Rikers Island. Uh, for people who are not from the New York area, that is, is a jail. That's correct. At the time when I worked, we had almost 25,000 prisoners 
in 10 different jails on Rikers Island and then several jails in our borough facilities. We have five boroughs in New York City. So it was uh, immense overcrowding. Uh, it was in, during the height of the crack cocaine epidemic. And so there was uh, a huge challenge back then. Um, it was really, a, truly a mass incarceration, if you, if you want to use that term. Tina, tell us about your childhood and background, which is somewhat different from Errol's, right? Indeed, and shorter. <laughs> so my father was uh, born in Russia. My mother was born in Ecuador, and they met here in the United States. So um, we had very unique parents, um, and I grew up in Wilton, Connecticut, so my, my parents were, were domestics. And really, you know, lived a wonderfully quiet life <laughs> um, and uh, did end up getting divorced, have two children, uh, lived in Connecticut my whole life till I moved to Long Island. Going back to your, each of your childhoods first, Errol, did you grow up playing with all sorts of different people from all sorts of different backgrounds? I mean, how did race sort of play into your life when you were a kid? Did you think about it a lot or not at all? No, you know, I, I really didn't because um, my father and mother had friends of all ethnicities. Uh, where I went to school, I went to a Catholic grammar school and a Catholic high school. And so there was, uh, you know, African-Americans, Latinos and Caucasian uh, kids, all boys. That was the only unfortunate thing about the school. And then also being a bat boy for the New York Yankees, you know, you're really on the other side of the spectrum where you're really integrating and meeting uh, all sorts of more Caucasian people, you know, from the players uh, to the management uh, to the fans and usually the fans that were seated close to the dugout. You know, those that were seated very close to the dugout were mostly Caucasians where the African-Americans and Latinos, you know, were either in the bleachers or in the upper decks. And, you know, you would realize that during batting practice because those young kids would often come down looking for a baseball or sort of autograph from the players. And then once the game started, you know, you can see there was a clear uh, delineation between where the African-Americans were seated uh, as opposed to some of the Caucasians. Mm. Tina, you grew up, as you said, in Connecticut. Did you ever feel consciously that you were white or did you feel privileged in any way? So I felt a little different, but not in a bad way because my parents weren't from this country. And I, I, I looked at that as that was pretty cool. And I was kind of thinking that made me a little special. Um, but growing up in Wilton, we definitely had uh, privilege and it, you know, was not, it was basically white. And at the time I grew up, the African-American people I knew were bussed in from Bridgeport and they, they actually stayed together at the school. We kind of integrated a little bit, but um, that, that was kind of my experience at the time. Um, I truly grew up in a really nice town and um and I think that's where the tricky word privilege comes in when it comes to white privilege. Probably 20 years ago, if you had said I had white privilege, I would have said, uh, no, I don't. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, I didn't have privilege. But I understand better now um, for a lot of reasons. And I wish we could name it white benefit of the doubt. Because the word privilege kind of throws people off. And 
you know, the only way to explain it is if I get pulled over, I'm not worried about it. I'm worried about getting a speeding ticket. If an African-American person gets pulled over, they're kind of worried what's going to happen. They have to keep their hands on the steering wheel. Um, don't say anything. You know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happens. How has that become clear? Errol, have you witnessed things that you never expected to? Well, you know, I, I think one of the things that we've experienced is sometimes looks from people, you know, even now in, in 2020, when we would walk around, whether it's in a restaurant or in a mall, that we would get certain looks, whether they're from African-Americans or Caucasians, you know, looking at us together. There was an incident where I was driving uh, Tina's uh, black Mercedes. We were heading from Connecticut back into New York City. We were driving through Westchester and a police officer from Westchester. As I drove by the vehicle, you know, Tina reminded me yesterday that I'd said, we're going to get pulled over driving while black. And sure enough, within three or four minutes, the car was right behind me and the officer pulled us over and he said that I was doing 67 in a 65 and uh, was extremely, extremely nasty. He was very belligerent. and He scared me. That's how bad he was. And I even identified myself as a law enforcement person. He lambasted me for even informing him of my position. And I, I thought of if I was the 30-year-old Errol or the 25-year-old Errol, the situation, especially if my wife wasn't in the vehicle, would probably have ended a, a lot differently because I don't think I would have been as calm as, as I was that particular day. And I remember as we drove away, we were both extremely quiet for quite some time because I was seething. I was also embarrassed that this happened in front of my wife. And so clearly an African-American man driving with a Caucasian woman and a black Mercedes was cause enough for him to pull me over. There was no reason. And we do know that law enforcement officers who have committed more serious violations while driving are always given a, a courtesy. And here I am, a deputy commissioner, being extremely polite to him. And I was uh, thoroughly embarrassed. Tina, how did you feel? Uh, I was a little bit like a deer in headlights because part of me wanted to say something like, what are you doing? Why is this happening? And the other part of me kind of knew better that that could infuriate this man more. He clearly was not handling this well. Errol was calm and quiet. And I, you know, I had to really rethink. I've never been in this situation. What do I do? Driving while black is such a chilling term, especially for those of us, I guess, who are white and have not been familiar with that phrase until fairly recently. Um, has it happened to you a lot, Errol, in, in the past? No, actually, th that was the first time. And, you know, in 2009, I ran for elected office here in Suffolk County. And as I was walking through the neighborhood, um, someone called the, called 911 and said there was a black man with black gloves breaking into a home. Now, I didn't know that this was occurring, and I'm going door to door uh, trying to inform residents of my ambition of being a, a county legislator. And all of a sudden, I, I hear police cars coming, and I see a police car drive quickly down the block into the cul-de-sac that I was walking into and turn back around and drive towards me. And he gets out of his car and he starts walking over to me. And I hear other car doors start to close behind me. 
and there are police officers. They're not running. They're not even walking fast. They're walking towards me. And I reached in my pocket to take my uh, retired shield and ID card out of out of my pocket because I knew that that would at least help ease the situation if, if there was a situation. So I was asked, what, I, what was I doing in the neighborhood? And I said, well, I can walk anywhere I want. What was the problem? And they explained that there was a call of a black man with black clubs breaking into a home. And I said, well, it sounds like O.J. Simpson to me. And meanwhile, an aviation unit now is above me. And you know the cost of putting a bird in the sky, those aviation units. So, so a helicopter is up in the sky above exactly. you. So you have a helicopter, you have eight or nine police cars. Uh, no, no one drew their firearm. No one ran at me aggressively. Um, they were extremely professional, thank goodness. But, you know, that could have been a, a, a very contentious moment if I was a different individual and I was in a button-down shirt with slacks and loafers on walking through the community. It wasn't like I had a bag over my, my back with a mask on. So that that was a little chilling in itself. Um, and then, unfortunately, every other time I walked through this particular community, I would go to the police precinct. I would tell them where I would be walking, the time I would be walking, just in case there were other residents that would make a complaint. Suffolk County is a majority white county in New York, on New York's Long Island. You were elected um, as the first African-American sheriff, the top elected law enforcement official. What did that feel like? I did not realize it until uh, the... Election was actually confirmed because uh, on election day, I was only uh, hit by 1,300 votes and they had to count over 22,000 absentee ballots. And as it got closer, when, it real, when I realized that I was going to win, several people informed me, not only the first African-American to be elected to sheriff, but the first African-American to be elected to a countywide position in Nassau or Suffolk County. So in Long Island history. And, you know, it, it comes with a lot of pressure. Uh, which I didn't realize until after I actually assumed office because, no, there are many people that are looking for me for leadership or mentorship and African-Americans that are that are aspiring and hopeful that I do well on a job. You have some that hope that I don't do well because then they can say the old adage, well, that's why we don't elect them. And so, you know, there is some pressure to perform or even outperform, you know, previous sheriffs that have ever held this office. And how's it going? You know, it's the culture change was easier than I thought. And I think part of the reason was because of my previous law enforcement background, that the staff respected that I have worked my way up through the ranks, that I have done the jobs that I'm asking them to do, and that we're in different times now. You know, we're not in the 1960s, 70s, or even the early 80s when I became a young correction officer where things were different. You know, we, we didn't monitor mental health. We didn't understand domestic violence. We didn't understand human trafficking. You know, those terms really weren't used back then. So now we're learning more. We use more evidence based with our training to ensure that our staff are, are the best trained possible for whatever circumstances they may encounter. You're listening to Let's Find Common Ground. I'm Ashley. I'm Richard. This podcast is part of the Common Ground Committee's drive to shed light, not heat, 
on public discourse. Subscribe to our newsletter at commonground.org and find out about our videos and events. And better yet, let us know what you think of the podcast, including ideas for future shows. You can reach us at podcast at commongroundcommittee.org. That email address again is podcast at commongroundcommittee.org. Also on our website, learn whether you share our philosophy about what it means to be a common grounder at a time of deep partisan division. Just as the Toulons are doing in this episode, you can share your successes and challenges to inspire others who want to reach common ground. More information at commongroundcommittee.org. Now back to our interview with Tina and Errol Toulon. What about Black Lives Matter, the protests against policing and the way it's done and the claims that many cops are racist? How do you react to that? Well, you know, first, I, I believe that in every line of work, there are there is racism, not just unfortunately, when it comes to the police, it leads with the tragedy. That's where the tragedy starts is where we start to talk about Black Lives Matter. If we look, um, you know, throughout history, uh, we've had uh, police incidents where I always tell people the reason why these incidents occur is because of poor training or poor supervision. When you look at Mr. Floyd in Minneapolis, you know, clearly poor training Poor supervision. Chauvin was supposedly a field training officer. Two of the four officers that were with him that particular day, one had three days on the job and one had five days on the job. And so before that incident, they were in a police academy. And now these men are in jail. The whole system is just not the law enforcement community. This, the whole system is the education. There's disparate treatment in education, health care, housing, you know, employment. So there are so many more things, mental health issues, all of those things lead up to someone having some sort of police involvement. And then where the supervision and the training lacks is where we have a death. Tina, how do you feel? What what does the movement mean to you? We're very much on on the same page, Errol and I. And it's really about education. Um, and I find as a white person that when I talk to others, there is that lack of understanding and, um, you know, wh why are we trying to change history? Why are we taking down statues? You know, but they're not thinking about what it means. And there's, there's people so afraid of change. And they're saying you can't erase history, but yes, let's learn from it. It's really a time to, to really understand. Um, where's, you know, where's the anger coming from? I, I get it. I see it. Um, and, and, but a lot of people just, they, they think neutrality and heads down is the way to go. It's not, not going to help. Do you think you would have felt this exact same way 10 years ago? I mean, had you not been married to Errol, would you feel the exact same way you do now? Uh, I would have felt it a little bit, but been much quieter about it. Now there's a part of me that you know, tries to change the conversation a little more now than I would have before. And in my house, you know, we, my, my mother was very neutral, like neutral was the way to be that nobody should fight. And don't, don't ruffle feathers. 
Don't shake things up. Everybody's good. Don't see color. You know, we're all good. We're all humans. But that doesn't help us <laughs> help others. I was thinking about as Errol was telling the story about um, helicopter overhead while, you know, he was he was campaigning. And, you know, I was telling the story to somebody and that, well, you know, he's probably exaggerating a little. I'm sure there wasn't a helicopter. You know, everybody downplays like, well, the people aren't really that bad. And we were we were at a party for a friend of mine. This is a few years ago. And somebody brought up a, a very racially heated topic. And Errol walked away. He didn't engage. And I was telling somebody about it and they said, well, he probably took it wrong. You know, I'm sure that the person didn't mean it. And that is so common, you know, and I don't want to sound like a Dear White People episode, but, you know, it's this, this, well, you know, people aren't that, I'm sure that person didn't mean it. Yeah, he did mean it. Um, You, Tina and Errol, you both agreed to talk to us on this podcast about your marriage, about things that are really personal to you. Why? Why do you think it's important to speak out about being an interracial couple? You know, I, I think it's it's important because, you know, we chose each other because we love each other. We didn't choose each other because of, the, you know, the color of our skins or anything. It was our personalities. It was our our commonalities, um, our beliefs, that we decided that this is the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. Often we're judged, whether it's through someone's eyes, uh, just by the way they look at us, or they might even mumble something, you know, uh, stuff like, why is he with her? Or what, what, what's so special about her? And, you know, they'll say it, while they may be saying it to a friend, they'll say it loud enough that we can hear it. Has anything surprised either of you about being in this relationship in, or being a mixed race couple? Uh, I think I was surprised at the number of people that gave us the side eye. And I think <laughs> I, I was surprised. The side eye? <laughs> yeah. Elaborate. So yeah. <laughs> they, they were disgusted or, um, you know, clearly were showing their disapproval. And I was surprised at that. Is this people you know, Tina, or do you mean people in stores? What do you mean? People in stores, people were walking around. Not not so much people I know. I, I wouldn't say my, my friends or family. It's the people around us. Do, do those unpleasant gestures or comments bring both of you closer together in a way? Has it made us closer? I've never been asked that question. I think yes. I think I'd have to say yes, because we are in this together and and, um, and we do react the same way. I think if this, if something were to happen today, I might be more apt to say something um, more so than maybe two years ago. Something gentle. <laughs> Like what? Like, you know, I, I saw that you, you made a face. Is, is everything okay? You know, is there anything you'd like to say? And can I ask, when, you, when you've had 
off reactions. Do they come from everyone? Um, have you heard them from African-Americans and white people and anyone else? Or does it tend to come from one ethnicity? Uh, I do notice sometimes more so from African-American women. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I would say more often it's that particular demographic than um, any others. Older, older white people. Yeah, sometimes oh, older, older right, older white people too, yes. Right. Do you see this interview as a teaching moment? You know, for me, I would say absolutely, because, you know, the questions that you're asking, sometimes Tina and I don't outwardly discuss. You know, to actually discuss it with you gives, us, gives me some pause to actually look a little deeper into some of the things that we're experiencing, especially with what's going on throughout our country and, and really the globe right now when we're talking about racism. When I asked that question, Tina, you were shaking your head vigorously. Yes, yes, and yes, and a whole lot of yes. It goes back to education. If we can reach 10 people, 100 people, 200, how many, however many, it's always a seed to me, you know, to, to put the thought out there, to, to give somebody pause and say, I never thought of it that way. I feel like this is an opportunity for that. And just going back to your your actually immediate family, your relatives, those close to you, was everything good with all of them or did you get some dodgy reactions from anyone in your more immediate circle? No, actually. No, my family uh, was great. My friends were great. Nothing dodgy, and I love that word. <laughs> yeah, it's an English word. Nothing dodgy. dodgy. What else do you want to talk about? Errol, you have a story about another encounter with police after you started working in law enforcement after graduating from college, I think. As a new correction officer, I was walking down the streets of Manhattan and I hear the squawking of radios and I hear the patter of footsteps hitting the, the, the pavement. And I turn around, and I see police officers running and naturally just entering the field of law enforcement. I'm looking around to see what is going on and next thing you know i'm thrown up against the wall the n-word is being used at me um the what had occurred was i was wearing a polo shirt it was a warm day and the butt of my gun was showing through the shirt it wasn't seen but you can see the imprint and so with that you know the police had asked me to uh, give them my firearm which means i have to reach for it which means i could be a casualty and I explained to him that, you know, I'm, I'm a New York City correction officer. And then I was asked to show my shield and ID card, which is my badge and ID card. And I said, it's in my rear left left pocket and you could reach for it because I didn't want to be accused of reaching for something. You know, unfortunately, these are the things that my father had spoke to my brother and I about, you know, growing up in the South Bronx when you're dealing with, uh, you know, law enforcement, the potential um, misinterpretation of reaching for something. So that's why I was very careful, even now with as a law enforcement official with several police officers around me, I was still extremely careful not to make that mistake. Mm. Errol, a lot has happened to you in your life. As we've as we've heard, you also survived cancer and, and, and thought you were going to die. What gives you hope? right now? 
You know, I think I feel I'm here for a reason. Uh, you know, I survived lymphoma in 1996, pancreatic cancer in 2003. I had a cardiac tamponade in 2006 where a pericardial window had to be placed in my heart. And so I, I really feel that I'm here for a reason. I think this moment in time as me being the Suffolk County Sheriff uh, has, I think, has made a difference. And I really don't feel like I'm just saying that to say it. I think I've made a, a strong impact, not only on the staff that work uh, for me, the 1,300 individuals that work for me, but also the MA population with the many rehabilitation programs that we've created. And so I think it gives me an opportunity to really make a, a, a difference in the imprint, because I do remember um, after I was diagnosed with the pancreatic cancer and I underwent a 10-hour surgery called the Whipple procedure, uh, six weeks after that, I was sick again, and I was told I needed a liver transplant within a year, and I, I was fading. I was down. To, I was a man of 240 pounds, almost at the time, down to 130 pounds. And I remember, you know, looking out my my back window in my backyard through the trees, and it was a little ray of sunlight. And I said, God, if you just give me another opportunity, I promise I'll try my best to do something great in life. And you know. To me, right now is that opportunity that I have. I don't take treating people for granted. I don't take every time I say goodbye to someone could be the last time I actually say goodbye because of my own personal experiences. So I, I really feel that that is my goal as long as I'm here on this earth is to really try and um, treat people with respect and do the best job possible while, while I'm here. Thank you very much, both of you for speaking with us on Let's Find Common Ground. Yes, thank you so much. It's been a good experience. It's a a great opportunity to, to have some impact. Tina and Errol Toulon on Let's Find Common Ground. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to our podcasts. Reviews and downloads also help us grow our audience. We have other episodes on race relations, policing, leadership, and more. And find out about our mission at commongroundcommittee.org. And once again, our email address is podcast at commongroundcommittee.org. And thanks for listening.